Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. I wanted to take a, a few minutes uh, on this uh, Shabbat Shirah, this Shabbat in which we read of the splitting of the Red Sea and uh, the song of celebration after the Israelites cross the sea, and also on this Tu Bishvat, which is today, this uh, holiday celebrating, uh, according to our tradition, the New Year for the Trees, a holiday in which we um, appreciate the majesty and the wonders of nature. I wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about miracles about miracles that, uh, that, that uh, may or may not occur in nature. It's strange to me, and I don't know if it's strange to you, but it's strange to me that at uh, the climax of our people's most cherished and sacred, most central story, is a miracle story. The story of the miracle at uh, the Sea of Reeds. And if you think about it, it is a totally superfluous story for the story of the Exodus. There's a reason that at the Passover Seder, we have this whole list of things and say Dayenu after each one, because it actually would have been enough, right? We wouldn't need, if you watch the Ten Commandments or the the animated Prince of Egypt, it feels like there's a a false ending after the story of the Exodus, right? The, The ending of the story should be the uh, children of Israel leave Egypt, and that's it, right? Or they go into the wilderness, they get the Torah, they go into the promised land, right? Why do you need this other additional climax to the story that's the story of the splitting of the Red Sea? It seems totally unnecessary to the story. So the question I want us to think about for a moment is what might the Torah be trying to teach by having this miracle story be an addition to, an appendix to, the most central story of our people. I've said on numerous occasions, and this isn't my, uh, my chiddish, this isn't my uh, uh, novel idea, that uh, a religion's central story or a nation's central story imparts the most important values and most important lessons that that nation or that religion or that people wants to teach and wants to perpetuate. So, for example, right, uh, some of our our most cherished stories as Americans uh, are stories like, uh, even though they are 
primarily mythology and not exactly uh, uh, historical fact, but the story of the pilgrims coming to the new world, right, escaping religious oppression in uh, in in England and then uh, coming to the new world for religious freedom and religious liberty, a freedom from tyranny and oppression, right, and so that instills into our psyche, regardless of whether or not it's historically factual, it instills within our psyche the value that we still cherish to this day, which is that we ought to remain in our country a, a, a beacon of hope for people who are oppressed everywhere, a place of refuge from uh, people who are tyrannized, uh, and, uh, and also a place in which uh, religious freedom continues to endure. Right? The central story of the Jewish people, the central story of the Torah, the story of the Exodus, as I've mentioned on numerous occasions, teaches a number of lessons. The first is that God is on the side of the oppressed against the oppressors, that, uh, that, that the God of the Bible abhors oppression and tyranny, and that we also ought to be a people, and that's why 36 times uh, the Torah crystallizes this in law, that we should know the heart of the stranger, for we were once strangers in the land of Egypt. So the central story there imparts a lesson. So okay, so what's the lesson then that this seemingly superfluous story of the crossing of the Red Sea is meant to impart to us? In order to answer that, I think we need to think for a moment about what a miracle is. What is a miracle? Now, the classical understanding or definition of a miracle is when uh, some uh, divinity or some outside force suspends or breaks or overturns the laws of nature, the laws of the natural order, uh, in order to accomplish something uh, for human benefit. In the case of the story that we're talking about, right? God uh, swoops in outside of nature suspends the normal course of things, suspends gravity, suspends the flow of water, suspends uh, all of the normal laws of nature in order to split the sea at a particular important moment so that the children of Israel can cross through on dry land and get to their freedom while miraculously as well, the waters come crashing back down on the Egyptian army as they pursue the Israelites through the Sea of Reeds. So that is, I think, the traditional or classical or typical understanding of miracles. And if you read the uh, Bible on a literal plane, in other words, you read the Bible uh, from a point of view that what it's describing is happening is actually what happened as it happened, then that's the viewpoint of a miracle that you get from the Bible. That it's a supernatural overturning of the natural order, at least temporarily. There's another way, of course, of looking at miracles, and that is the, I would say, the naturalist's way of looking at miracles. I had this when I was in high school. I had a teacher, we were learning world history. I went to a high school that had a Christian heritage. Uh, I went to a private high school. Uh, and so we learned the stories of the Bible, some of the stories of the Bible in the first part of the semester of that class as if they were actual history. But we learned them in some ways from like a naturalist perspective. So you hear this sometimes, by the way, with the 10 plagues. But the 10 plagues are, of course, a miracle story too, although they seem more intrinsic to the story of the Exodus. That's why I'm not focusing on them. I understand 
why the plagues are part of the story of the Exodus, because they're uh, meant to either punish the Egyptians or uh, persuade the Egyptians or compel the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. That is not what's happening with the Red Sea. They're already gone. Okay, so that's why I'm not talking about the ten plagues. But I hear people talk about the ten plagues this way too, the naturalist way, right? That uh, that that it wasn't really blood, that it like kind of looked like blood, but it was uh, something that happened to the water that killed all the fish and made it undrinkable. And then when that happened, all of the frogs started to repopulate because they ate all of the carcasses of the dead fish. And then the frogs started dying, and so then like lice started spreading and vermin started spreading. All these things. But that's the natural the naturalist explanation of the miracle, which is to say that's not exactly miraculous, or maybe it's miraculous or coincidental about the timing that it happened, but really these are natural processes that are just happening. So in my high school class, when we learned the story of the Exodus and the story of the Red Sea, my teacher said, now, I don't know if the sea splits the way it's described in the Bible or not, But all I do know is that the only thing that needs to happen for people to be able to cross a body of water is for them not to be, not to have to drown in it, right? It needs to be at a low enough level that if we're saying that they walked through, that they could walk through and still have their nostrils above the water. So maybe the sea didn't split and they didn't walk through on dry land, but the sea levels dropped enough miraculously at that moment, coincidentally at that moment, that they were able to cross. That's a sort of naturalist explanation, which is akin, by the way, I think, to uh, an explanation that these stories didn't really happen in the first place. Right? That, uh, that these are exaggerations, or they are uh, mythologies, which they very well may be. I, it's hard to prove whether or not this actually happened because there's no historical evidence for it outside of the Torah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, a, 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 an absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. So we don't know whether or not it happened uh, like this. Thinking about the first explanation of miracles, though, I find it a little bit troubling. Because if miracles mean that first definition, that miracles are about supernatural divine intervention overturning the natural order, then I have a few questions about miracles. Number one, why does it seem to not happen now? Are we not worthy of miracles happening? Only ancestors thousands and thousands of years ago were worthy of miracles happening? Would it not be good to inspire and instill faith in our children uh, that, uh, that when they say, hey, how come miracles don't happen anymore? Uh, we could say, no, miracles actually do still happen. Seas still split. Laws are still overturned. This happened just yesterday, right? We could say that to our kids, but we can't if we understand miracles that way. The other problem, I think the bigger problem, uh, is... Uh, how do you understand a God who performs miracles in some instances of people being in danger and in need of salvation and not in other ones? Right? So, for example, if, uh, if in an egregious example, if God was prepared to swoop in and split the sea for the Israelites so that they wouldn't be overtaken by Pharaoh's army, why didn't God intervene in the Holocaust? Or if you want to say that God did intervene in the Holocaust and the uh, Allies uh, uh, eventually liberated him, okay, fine, that's a, that, that, that you can make that argument, but why not in 1939? 
Because we wouldn't have Israel before. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, here we go. So I have a problem with even that answer because a God that uh, is willing to uh, use the Holocaust as an opportunity to create a state of Israel would also be able to create a state of Israel without the Holocaust. So I, it's difficult for me to, uh, to understand miracles by that definition, even if we say that we got something good out of it. Uh, I'm not sure if the cost, uh, unless, uh, if the cost is deliberate, that makes me question the justice of God. Okay? Uh, I'm not saying it makes me disbelieve in God, I'm just saying if that's the truth, I have, I have some words I would need to share with God about uh, that thought process and try to understand it better. I think there is yet another way of understanding miracles that neither has the theological and moral problems of the first way of understanding miracles and is not dismissive in the uh, second understanding of miracles which is the understanding of Maimonides. So Maimonides in the Guide of the Perplexed talks about miracles in the following way. I have said that a thing does not change its nature in such a way that the change is permanent merely in order to be cautious with regard to the miracles. For although the rod was turned into a serpent, the water into blood, and the pure and noble hand became white, without a natural cause that necessitated this, these and similar things were not permanent and did not become another nature. But as they, the rabbis, may their memory be blessed, said, the world goes its customary way. In other words, the rabbis of the, of the Talmud said that the world follows natural laws. In natural order, it goes by its customary way. There's actually uh, a, a thread of tradition in rabbinic literature that disbelieves the supernatural explanation of miracles. And Maimonides is going to rely on that. This is my opinion, and this is what ought to be believed. I love Maimonides because not only is it my opinion, but it's what you should believe too. Okay, I'm not going to be so bold as to say that. I'm just laying out why I think Maimonides' point of view is a worthy one to consider. The sages, may their memory be blessed, have made a very strange statement about miracles, the text of which you will find in Breshit Rabbah and in Midrash Kohelet. This notion consists in their holding the view that miracles, too, are something that is, in a certain respect, in nature. They say that when God created that which exists and stamped upon it the existing natures, he put into these natures that all the miracles that occurred would be produced in them at the time when they occurred. According to this opinion, the sign of a prophet consists in God's making known to him the time when he must make his proclamation, and thereupon a certain thing is effected according to what was put into his nature when first it received its particular impress. If this statement is as you will see it, it indicates the superiority of the man who made it, and the fact that he found it extremely difficult to admit that a nature may change after the work of the beginning, after the works of creation, or that another violation may supervene after that nature has been established in a definite way. For instance, he seems to consider that it was put into the nature of water, to be continuous, and always to flow from above downwards, except at the time of the drowning of the Egyptians. It was a particularity of that water to become divided. 
I have drawn your attention to the spirit of that passage and to the fact that all this serves to avoid having to admit the coming into being of something new. It is said in the passage, Rabbi Jonathan said, The Holy One, blessed be God, has posed conditions to the sea, that it should divide before Israel. That is the meaning of the words, and the sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared. Rabbi Jeremiah, son of Eleazar, said, The Holy One, blessed be God, has posed conditions not only to the sea, but to all that has been created in the six days of the creation. That is the meaning of the words, I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have commanded the sea to divide, the fire not to harm Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, three characters in the book of Daniel, the lions not to harm Daniel, and the fish to spit out Jonah. All the other miracles can be explained in an analogous manner. You understand what Maimonides is saying here? What Maimonides is saying is that miracles are not a supernatural overturning of the laws of nature. And neither are they uh, temporary anomalies that, uh, that, that make it possible to do something you weren't previously able to do that got exaggerated later over time. What he's saying is the miracles described in the Torah are real miracles. But miracles aren't supernatural. Miracles are built in to the very structure of nature. Miracles are actually natural. Or as my teacher Rabbi Brad Artson says, they are super comma natural exclamation point. Because what a miracle is, according to this definition, is something that we didn't previously think was possible But once it occurs, we now know that it was actually always possible all along. Miracles are that which we never thought was previously possible, but once they happen, we realize that actually they were possible all along. And in that respect, miracles are continually occurring. We continually live in a self-surpassing and surprising universe. I will give you one example, a minor one in my life. Because when uh, I married Adira, I didn't think it was possible to love somebody as much as I loved Adira. And then, and then my daughter was born, and then Lilo was born. And I was thinking, okay, you know, a person only has so much love to give, right? And so if I have a daughter, I'm going to have to like take some of the love away from how much I love my wife, and I'm going to have to give some of that over to my daughter in order to love her the maximum amount. But what I discovered is that built into nature is something I didn't previously think was possible, but it turns out actually was. That love can expand. That love can surpass what you thought was possible. And then we were pregnant with another child, and I said, okay, I don't think it's possible to, I'm going to have to take away some of my love for my daughter and give it to my next child. I'm not going to be able to love him as much. And then he was born, and I discovered that I could love even more than I ever thought was possible before. That's a minor, that's a small example. But if you think about the way of our world, the nature of things, uh, the trees that we celebrate today on, on Tubishvat, the nature of our existence, the nature of, of reality, what we discover time and again is that the things that we think are natural, the things that we think are possible, are only the sum total of all the miracles that existed before. Because billions and billions of years ago, 
it was, even if there were people then, it would have been considered impossible for, for, for uh, molecules to come together and form compounds. How does this happen? And it would have been considered impossible after that for compounds to join together and spontaneously be able to respirate and have life. And for those combat, for, for those individual cells to start replicating and create even more life and diverse life with which we are blessed in our, in our world. In other words, we are the products of a continually self-surpassing world and self-surpassing cosmos. We don't think about it that way because we're living in it. We don't think about all of the miracles that it took to get from point A to point B where we are today, and we don't think about all the miracles that are occurring right now that will get us to point C 10 years down the line, 50 years down the line, 100 years down the line, but I guarantee you that miracles are happening right now if you pay attention to them and are aware of them. Brad Artson, in his extraordinary book on uh, the miracles of creation, says we live in that most rare of all possibilities, a long-lived universe. Some physicists work backwards from the present to the Big Bang and theorize that cosmic inflation is the eternal state of existence. The world of in an eternal inflation is a quantum realm, as nothing can get any bigger because it is always inflating away from all other events too quickly to even approach atomic size. This realm is constantly creative. And the notions of time and space have no meaning. As there's no direction or change over time, and there are no variations or entities to create space, this realm is infinite potential. And out of this eternally writhing creative potential, there are rare emergences of bubbles in which inflation stops. We live in such a miraculous anomaly. Time has direction, space has distinction, galaxies emerge, and life evolves. We live in a remarkably fine-tuned space-time bubble, perfect for the emergence of conscious life. We living things are stardust and hydrogen, matter so rare, those elements constitute about 0.5% of all matter that exists. The stardust of which we're made can, constitutes a mere 0.01% of all matter. But it takes this entire pyramid of matter to produce the startling complexity that is life and consciousness. We are living, he says, in the center of time. Neither two are, this is actually an, a, uh, a, 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 something that has been de demonstrably proven in astronomy. We're living in the center of time. This isn't just his crazy idea. Neither too early nor too late. It is just right. At an age of approximately 14 billion years, the cosmos is old enough to have emerged into consciousness, yet young enough that the dark matter has not overwhelmed visible matter or spread matter so far apart that no light or radiation can beam information to the earth. Our size is the central size possible, neither too big nor too small. We are just right. The emergence of intelligent life from prokaryotes took nine, 999 999 over 1,000 of the Earth's age. A series of breaks, lucky for us, unfortunate for others, continue to contribute to the development of complex life. In other words, we are the products of a series of extraordinary miracles, but it wasn't supernatural divine intervention. It was the emergence of what was previously not considered possible that once it happens, we realize it is within the realm of possibility. Everything that exists 
is a product of those miracles, including us. And so I think, therefore, we are taught this miracle story in the Exodus to teach us four things about the awareness of miracles in our world. Number one, gratitude. That we are living as the result of continual winnings of a lottery. Luck. And extraordinary luck. And so the fact that we are here when we could very easily, way more likely than not, not have been here, to me is uh, trying to teach us to be grateful, to live with a sense of gratitude for the life that we have and the relationships we're able to form. The second thing I think it teaches us is humility. That we don't know the sum total of everything that's existed before us previously, and we don't yet know how our world and how each of us are going to surpass what we know to be possible now. So it invites us to a sense first of our smallness in the great scheme of things, and also of our lack of certainty about how anything is going to turn out. That means, I think, humility produces a sense of openness to the possibilities of the world, and a sense of uh, our, uh, uh, how, how problematic it is to enforce on anybody a sense of our own certainty about the way things are or the way things ought to be. The third thing I think it produces is responsibility. That if all that exists has this extraordinary potential to surpass itself in surprising, miraculous ways, then we have a responsibility to care for all that is and to care for each other because each of us and everything in our world represents infinite potential. We don't know how it's going to turn out, so we have a responsibility to care for and nurture and protect it so that what is possible within it is able to flourish and emerge. And the fourth and final thing I think that a miracle story is part of our central story teaches us is to be courageous. Because that thing we may not think to be possible right now may actually be possible. So we, like Nachshon ben Aminadav, can jump into the sea not knowing whether or not it will split out of the confidence that things that we don't yet think are possible are indeed, in their very nature, possible. Because we live in an extraordinary universe of infinite possibility, much of which we can't predict. And so we can move boldly into that future with humility, but also with courage. Because we are capable of accomplishing more than most of us even think is possible right now. Gratitude, humility, responsibility, and courage. This is the lesson of miracles. And this is why each and every year we append the story of the Exodus, our central story, with a reminder of the miraculous then and the miracles that are possible even in our time.